Today, we're pulling back the curtain about speech pathology graduate student training. We'll hear from my current student, Gisela, about her training at UT Health San Antonio, her experience working with clients with life speech pathology, and what it's like to work with clients via telepractice. I think you'll find her insights interesting. Let's jump in. Welcome to the Listen for Life podcast with Genevieve Richardson. Genevieve is a speech-language pathologist rehabilitating adults with communication challenges after a stroke or due to a neurological impairment. Living with aphasia is hard. Caregiving is hard. You are not alone. Get equipped with knowledge from experts in the field and professionals you need to know. We'll hear stories and experiences from others who are navigating life with aphasia. So. Put your earphones in and take a walk outside. This isn't just a podcast. This is a community, a resource, and a support system. We're in this together. Do life. Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining us today. This is my first interview officially with Gisela Jaimez. She is my current graduate student she is at the University of Texas Health Science Campus in San Antonio, Texas. Welcome, Gisela. Hello, thank you for having me. You I'm are. so excited to be here. This is fun. So what you all don't know is this is like our sixth take because I just can't seem to get this tech figured out. But anyway, so I am the wizard behind the curtain and the curtain is wide open. You all get to see it, well, hear it as it goes down. So I thought we'd start today and talk just a little bit about how does one become a speech pathologist. So in general, and then we're going to get Gisela's take on it. You have to get a bachelor's degree. It's typically in the area of communication disorders. At least that's what my degree's in. What is yours in? Correct. Mine's also in communication disorders. Go ahead. And if you, I was going to say, and if you have another degree, you can also level and go back and just take those courses that you need and level. There you go. Great advice. And I remember when I was in school, there were several people that did that. Mm -hmm. And then you catch up and you all can go to graduate school together. So as a condition of graduating with your master's, you have to complete at least one internship. I did too because I did an internship in the schools, and then I also wanted a medical internship. Were you required to do two internships? Um, not technically. We just had to do four hours of clinical work. 400, not four. 400 <laughs> hours of clinical work. Um, and we did a total of two, although I know other universities do more than that, depending on if you're online, virtual, or in person, or if your college has or university has a clinic or not. Gotcha. So we know that you need a master's in speech pathology. You can work with kids, you can work with adults, and then there's tons of different other ways you could work with kids, with adults, or you can work in the corporate field. There's lots of ways you can go. Gisela, I, so I'm going to back up a step. So how I got to meet you 
and she's heard the story a hundred times, but you all get to hear it hopefully for the first time. I really wanted to have a student from Texas. My kid is going to UT San Antonio in the fall. There's like 20 different speech pathology programs in Texas. I wrote, I did the research, I wrote them all down and I'm like, okay, which one? Well, when UT San Antonio came up on my list, I'm like, ding, ding, ding. That's where I'm going to start. Little did I know that down in San Antonio, uh, you are part of the UT Health Program versus UT San Antonio, which is part of the University of Texas, just university system. Mm -hmm. Is that a big deal? I mean, UT Health System, I mean, that's statewide and Texas is huge. Yeah, I think UT Health definitely treats it as a big deal. They've always really expressed like we're not part of UTSA, we're our own system, because I think UT Health itself is more medically based. And I think they wanted to distinguish that by like saying we're not UTSA, we're UT Health in San Antonio. So I think it's just the emphasis on like medicine and a lot more medically um, centered uh, education. <laughs> Oh, well, it's a wonderful program. I've had interactions with a couple of different of the instructors, the professors there at the program, and I couldn't be happier with the quality of students UT Health is putting out. So woohoo. Thank you. I'm going to take that as a compliment. And But I also loved how they their program works. I mean, I got a literal huge variety or like huge range of courses all the way from pediatric feeding to like traumatic brain injuries I mean and cultural competence I mean it was amazing the coursework that they provided nice so it was just meant to be that I found Gisela because I wanted a student in Texas and she needed an internship. And actually, she was kind of waiting around for an internship where her fellow students were already placed and doing such, you know, they were already doing the work for at least a week before I contacted the school and got a hold of uh, Dr. Kennedy. And next thing we knew, Gisela is on and, and she's jumping in with both feet. Yeah. And so one of the reasons I was just sitting around waiting was because I was really advocating for myself. I really wanted an, an adult placement. I really wanted to work with adults. So I was like, I refuse to be placed with kids again. Put me with adults. And so that's why she she had me on hold. And luckily, you came around and I got to be placed with um, life speech pathology. So I have a cat. Her name is Kismet. And there's a, and kismet means fate. It's like karma. Well, her brother is called karma. So I have two cats, kismet and karma. But when I met Kizzy, it's like she was waiting for me, which is how their names came to be. And I feel like this situation was kismet. So that's my word of the day, kismet. Spell it, everybody. K-I-S-M-E-T. It's, it's all good. So we've had a great semester. We've gotten a lot of work done. Uh, Gisela has been great building rapport with all the folks. So let's jump into her self-assessment. So what I like is all my students to do a self-assessment right before I get to write up their final assessment, which helps give them their grade. So first things first, 
I'd love to know what you've learned about yourself as a clinician going through this internship experience. Yeah, so I feel like I got to learn a lot about myself as a clinician, because especially when you're going through your grad program, you're just like reading the books, you're like neck deep in all of this terminology and all of this treatment, how you're going to apply it. But it's not till you really start doing the work that you start learning how your style is as a clinician and whatnot. Um, And so as I got to work with your clients or my clients, our clients, I learned that um, one of my favorite parts about being doing speech pathology or speech therapy is I love building relationships with our clients. I think it's the core of our therapy. If you don't have patient rapport, I don't think you have, you're really going to make any improvements. I think it trumps data. It trumps treatment. You have to have that connection with them in order to like see improvement. I think I saw how well you got along with them and how your rapport looked with them, which is why it made it so easy for me to jump in and, you know, get to know them because you got along with them so well. And I mean, you knew all of their family and all of the their history where they had lived and all that. And I saw how big of a difference it made. And it just taught me that I love an environment where I get to like flourish and explore my relationships with my clients. I also learned that I'm super passionate about communication partner training because Ms. Genevieve asked me to do a project this semester and it was, I decided to do communication partner training and I just didn't realize how important I, I thought it was until I started doing everything. And I was like, no, I do absolutely love this. And I think this is crucial to the work we do with our clients because we teach, we treat the whole person and not just the aphasia, you know? And so as a clinician, I think I learned about myself that I want to continue to treat the whole person just how you do and not just the diagnosis. That's awesome. Folks, my work here is done. Mic drop. Now, if I can just get another 50 of Gisela's before I retire, then my work will be done. So I digress. On to question two. Tell me how your understanding of aphasia kind of developed or evolved from the book learning to in person. So before starting my spring externship, which is where I'm at right now with you, I had only treated PPA, which is progressive primary aphasia. It's progressive and it, it looks a lot different than the typical aphasia. So I had very little experience with aphasia, meaning I had <clears throat> to kind of develop what the book told me. And I felt like that was very black and white, you know, clear cut, defined, um, all of these labels, you know, you have transcortical, you have brocas, you have Wernicke's and it's fluent or it's not fluent or it's, they have good comprehension or they don't. And realistically, it does not look like that. Like labels do not do anything for us. And comprehension, even comprehension is on a spectrum. You don't understand. It's not you understand or you, you do or you don't. It doesn't work that way. It's, you know, they might understand this or they might understand with these cues and so on. And so getting to work with aphasia, now I'm thinking of it as a characteristic. So it's way more gray, way more muddled, way more blurry and murky. 
aphasia is like something you treat, but it's also something you modify and you adjust. And I mean, if you choose to label things, aphasia will never just be global. You know, once you start treating and working with this client, it's transient. It can change to whatever other label you want to give it. But it's just a characteristic that this person um, has. I think we know so many people that don't have strokes or TBIs and they don't listen to you when you talk or they're not good at expressing their feelings. You know, we all treat our communication as like a characteristic. And I think that that's how we should treat aphasia as well as a characteristic in how they communicate rather than like a diagnosis or, or a overall umbrella of, yeah, diagnosis, if that makes sense. I I really think it does. I've never been a fan of labels because I never met someone with aphasia that I could put in one of those boxes. I never really liked it. Um, I always fought against it. And I think the other point that you bring up is this is a person. This person does not need to be defined now with their speech and language characteristics. Like you said, it's a characteristic, not a label. And our job is to help them every way we can to improve their communication, improve how they communicate with their families, their spouses, their kids, their neighbors. It is the whole person. I agree. And that also kind of leads me into communication partner training. You know, we also want to help like train their part, their partners, their neighbors and their friends to also communicate with them, you know, like treating the whole person, like you said, is, is, it takes two to tango. Like you wanted, it's the whole community and that's just going to come with education. And I think that's why I got so passionate about it as I was working on this project, because it's so true and resonates when you're treating a person with aphasia that it's, it's beyond them and their diagnosis and it's about community. It is. See, folks, she drank the punch. <laughs> so we serve clients. Uh, we I kind of define it in two different groups of folks. So I wanted to get Gisela's take on the folks, and I'm just going to give a broad category of the folks that are working, either they're early in their career and they have a stroke, or it's through their working years up until retirement. And then my second group is those folks that have probably retired or are very close to retiring, and they're kind of in a different phase of their life. Can you talk to us, Gisela, um, just general impressions of like the working age group versus the retirement age group? What are their needs? And what do their spouses and families need? Maybe it's the same, but I'd like to hear your take on that. Yeah, um, I think that if we remove the aphasia and we look at these populations, just as populations, our working age is their life participation, you know, which is how they're involved, what they're doing at that time looks a lot different than somebody who's retired. Somebody who's, you know, peak of their career working is highly uh, like motivated and like still has all of these goals and things that they want to reach. Not saying that people who are retired don't. I'm just saying that the goals look different. They're a lot Mm -hmm. more goal, like goal oriented and require a lot of more discipline and resilience and commitment versus the goals that you have when you're retired, which might look 
generally speaking, like hanging out with your kids who you now get to commit time to or hanging out with your grandchildren or taking that trip you never got to take. You know, it's more about getting to focus on yourself and the people you love, where I think that younger age or younger group looks more like hanging out with your friends and committing time to others and the goals that you've set so that you can eventually get to that time where you get to look or work on yourself and focus more on yourself, if that makes sense. So I think that when you add aphasia, those characteristics are still going to be there. A person who had a stroke and now has aphasia but was at the peak of their career is going to be way more motivated to get back into the workforce. And so their goals are going to look different than a person who's retired and who whose main goal is to be able to communicate with their partner and read a book to their grandchildren. You know, being able to give a speech at work or being able to give orders or type an email is going to, you know, require different amounts of works and a different amount of resilience and discipline and self-motivation than, you know, functional communication, which is, I mean, both are functional. What I mean is simpler, not simpler. I don't like any of those words. I know. Um, I just feel like the, the verbiage that you use is so like impactful and for retired people, it's a lot more family oriented or um, self-focused. And so those are going to be slower paced than those of like, well, I have a job interview tomorrow, if that makes sense. But both require self-motivation, discipline, commitment. I just think that they're going to um, come out. They're going to present differently Mm -hmm. because the goals are different. Yeah. And again, I am not about labeling people, but sometimes you have to acknowledge that depending on where you are in life, your goals are going to fluctuate. And we really, really try to meet each person where they are with their goals. So it's just, it is just a little different. So I agree with everything you said there. Now, what, what about their spouses and families? Is there a difference between what spouses and families need? If you have a working age person, like your husband had a stroke versus retirement age, do the spouses need something different? Not, I don't think that they do because I think grief is experienced regardless of age or the goals that the client's going to have for themselves. I think as the spouse or the family or the friend or the caregiver, it's going to be really hard to return that independence to them, even though you want to trust and know that they're going to be okay with that independence. It's hard to to not want to over-nurture and over-care um, in both situations. And you're still also in both situations going to grieve the person that you knew prior to the accident, whether it's stroke, whether it's a traumatic brain injury. And I think you will continue to live in this maybe consistent fear of like, it might happen again, or looking for those signs of, of concern. So I think that they both require self-care and prioritization of themselves. You know, I think they both require commitment to their loved one and acceptance and discipline. Like these are all characteristics I think caregivers 
and loved ones will um, share. I don't think that one spouse will have any different needs from the other spouse that I can think of off of the top of my head. That makes sense. How about how about you? Do you think that there's something that might differ from the two populations? I actually don't think so. I've really been noodling this the last couple of days. One thing that's come up in our caregiver support group that we run is the theme of grieving. And I think that's a whole other ginormous, yes, that's my word, ginormous topic that needs to be addressed by all spouses, irregardless of age, because we can grieve when there's a change of what our expectations are. So to be continued on that. And I actually have a couple of great folks that I intend to interview to help give you all some more information about that, some strategies, some actionable items. All right. So let's, uh, we're going to get to wrapping this up shortly, but the one thing that's unique about our practice is we are a 100% telepractice. So we're on zoom and I specifically chose zoom because we have a whiteboard and all the capabilities of what we can do on the computer with our folks that I think unless you're in a clinic where you have everything at your fingertips, it's just a little different having the whole internet and Google, Dr. Google, Google images, Google maps, whatever the case may be, you have it at your fingertips. So Gisela, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about What did you think you were going to come up against with telepractice? Well, let's start there and then we'll dig in just a little bit more. Okay. Um, So I am a post-pandemic grad student. So meaning that my senior year of undergrad of my bachelor's degree, COVID hit. So everything went virtual. Prior to that, I had zero experience with virtual classes, virtual anything. Um, And I started grad school virtually. I mean, the whole first year of grad school was via Zoom. And I think along with the rest of the world, we were exploring Zoom together. I mean, my professors, me, my cohort, we were all exploring Zoom. I think that I, I came in not knowing what to expect because all I had experience was being the student, not the the person who teaches via Zoom. So I came in completely um, clueless. Luckily, I had a great teacher because you've been doing this far before COVID had hit and you had a lot more experience. You taught, you. I didn't even know what a whiteboard was and none of my professors had ever <laughs> used a whiteboard. Yay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we had, I didn't even know you could share your remotes like with your, the person you were Zooming with. Um, there was just a lot of things I didn't know you could do. So I came in completely clueless to the, to all of it. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do this because all I've ever been taught is in person, you know, body language, eye contact, um, hand, we don't do hand over hand, but that's like, you know, how things used to be done and cueing and all of that, but in person. So I was a little panicked to come in, um, But to answer your question, I had zero idea how it was going to go. It is different. In a lot of ways, I love it. 
I remember back in my home health days, the only supplies I had at hand were those that I carried in to the house in my ginormous bag or what I could obtain in the client's house for function and work. It didn't matter what we were working on, but I had their whole house available to me. Um, and that's fun and interesting too, but I, I just think in this day and age, COVID changed everything. Even, you know, if my grandmother were still alive, she would have been on Zoom. And also folks, a big part of what we do at Life Speech Pathology is working on verbs. So Zoom used to be a noun and now it's a verb. You're Zooming with people or I Zoomed with Gisela yesterday. You know, mm -hmm. anyway, work on your conjugation, everybody. So let's talk about <laughs> um, real quick telepractice advantages, disadvantages with the aphasia population. Yeah. So I think one of the natural advantages of virtual or teletherapy with our aphasia clients is it kind of lends itself to constraint induced by nature. I mean, constraint induced being that it, it forces or requires our clients to use whatever modality that is called for. In this case, it's verbal. It requires them to be verbally expressive because um, a lot of our clients aren't tech savvy or can't type or um, just face different uh, barriers that kind of by nature, again, forces them to use verbal expression. I think that's an advantage because I think that uh, within speech therapy specifically, you want them to do that, obviously, depending on their goals. In this case, most of our clients have the goal of being verbally expressive. So I think that's a plus, especially when they can't rely on other things or pointing and pointing at things around their room the way you can in person. Um, I think it allows uh, everyone to have access to treatment regardless of living situation. You know, we have some of our clients live in a very small town in the middle of some huge state and we get to treat them regardless of where they're at and they don't have to drive an hour to treatment. And I think that's fantastic. It also makes it easier for others to join the session as well. I talked about communication partner treatment. And for example, if somebody's friend who lives 30 minutes away and can't, you know, leave work or whatever to come join our session, but has a lunch break, they'd be able to jump on a zoom and get communication partner training just that easy. And I think that's great because it allows more opportunity to educate people who wouldn't normally drive to a clinic for this, this small of a, of an education, if you are training. Um, I think that it emphasizes turn taking because on zoom, when you talk at the same time, you don't hear what's going on the way you do in person. So you really have to practice turn taking, which is huge for um, our clients with aphasia, but mainly our clients with traumatic brain injury. And um, lastly, evaluations um, technically are limited as they cannot be like, like do physical tasks. But I think that that in itself is a benefit because it, it forces us to be way more dynamic and you're not constricted to this like standardized exam. If, if that makes sense. I think that's my motto today. I keep asking if that makes sense. But um, I think those are the benefits that we get to see in telepractice. And I have some challenges too. I don't know if you want me to share those. Yeah, as well. sure. Do it. Um, I think it's a little harder to do multimodal 
stuff, which is, you know, again, because it's by nature, it's constraint induced. So our clients who do have a harder time communicating can't do like gestures as clearly or um, drawing or, you know, showing us stuff on their phone because the camera doesn't get it. Although if they're tech savvy, they can jump on Google and share their screen. So that's still awesome. Oh, that's another benefit I forgot to mention. It's so easy to pivot when you're doing teletherapy. Excuse me. Um, it's so easy to pivot because if some if they're not gathering what you're saying, I can be on the side Googling already a picture of what we're working on and I can just pull it up, show it to them, and then we can move back over to what we were doing. You know, we can um, use videos, we can use GIFs, we can use pictures, apps, um, so many tools all in one session without requiring, like you said, have like this big old tub of tools or equipment that we have to use. So it's so easy to pivot and modify like according to your client and their goals, which I think is a huge benefit that is harder to do in person because it's so easy to get flustered and being like, oh, hold on, let me get this and, and let me get that. And give me one second because they're watching you do all of this, you know, versus um, via Zoom, you can still keep that eye contact while doing the same stuff. But back to my challenges. Um, it's not always user-friendly, as some of our clients are not experienced with tech. Um, it's a little harder to read body language. You know, if they're sh uh, I can read facial expressions really well, but not the body language. Um, I think that in-person, obviously, is better for evaluations in the sense that they're standardized, not in the sense that they're dynamic. Um, and I do think that eye contact is easier to um, monitor in person because although I might be making eye contact with my client and I think they're making eye contact with me, I, there's no way to verify that they're doing so. Um, and things like personal space is easier in person for like our traumatic brain injury patients or anybody with like social or pragmatic um, goals. The personal space obviously is like non-negotiable when working via Zoom. But that's really it. I think there's a lot of benefits and I think it's really great for um, clients who are willing to put in the work. I love it for mental flexibility, not only for us as clinicians, but also for mm -hmm. our clients. I have one gentleman that he was, he had a flip phone when he had his stroke three years ago and he was in a very important job, but he did not use a smartphone. He had never used a laptop and he has learned to log on, log off. He can annotate on the whiteboard. He can draw on the whiteboard. And now if for some reason the zoom link doesn't come in, he calls me on the telephone to tell me to send him the link. So this is all about initiation, mental flexibility, stick-to-itiveness. So I think there are advantages. You brought up an interesting mm -hmm. point about the disadvantage of evaluations. I've never been a huge fan of standardized, mostly because I don't want to keep my head in a protocol and following through, and I don't love making people do something I know they're not going to be able to do. I've always you know, other than grad school, I pick and choose what subtest I do and I stop it. So I don't, I personally have not done a ton of standardized tests in telepractice, 
But with that being said, dynamic and formative assessment, whichever you want to call it, it's where you take your clinical judgment, you take your knowledge of the evidence and treatment and what is this uh, subtest trying to get at. And again, you can pivot and you can manipulate it and really see where is their language breaking down. So it depends on how you want to look at it. If you are with an insurance company and you absolutely have to be giving a full test, full battery, standardized scores, this is going to be really hard. Many of our test manufacturers have also pivoted with the pandemic and have um, availed their products to be telepractice friendly. So that's wonderful. We're all learning here, folks. We're all doing the very best we can, of course, all with the best intentions. All right. So we're going to wrap it up with Gisela. Wow. We've been talking 31 minutes already. I know. Time flies when you're having I know. Not like we don't talk to each other all day, every day. <laughs> so let's wrap up your final question today. What are your final thoughts for clinicians that are going come the fall through the UT Health System? What do they need to know? What do they need to think about? What characteristics do they need to have in themselves to be successful in an internship working with adults? I won't speak about kids because I don't have any knowledge with that. So we're keeping it with the adult clients. Okay. Well, I think that um, I just would want to share with other grad students that your relationship with your client is one of the, if not the most important factor during treatment. Um, it's so important to make time to get to know your client and for them to get to know you because you know you have to build that trust because without it, they're not going to trust your treatment plan or they're not going to trust your uh, crit like feedback and so on. I think it's one of the necessary components to succeed. Um, not only in your externship and internship, but just in general with your clients. I think it's also important to be open-minded. Take feedback from both your clients and your supervisor. You know, we do not know it all. You definitely do not know it all if you are in your externship slash internship. You have to be open-minded to feedback and you have to take it well. I mean, I, I've heard horror stories where it's a constant like battle of like, well, I did that because of this and this and like, you know, arguing. I mean, I hope I took my the feedback well. Um, I, I feel like I did, but I think it's necessary to be open and welcome criticism and whatnot so that we can glow, grow, not glow, <laughs> grow. <laughs> um, and don't be afraid to try new things and rethink goals and treatment plans and um, how you're approaching a situation. It's really easy to be like, well, I already set this goal. So this is what we're sticking to. If it's not working for your client and you're not seeing a progression, it's it's really important to pivot. And just how it's important to be flex for our clients to be flexible, it's important for us to be flexible because we don't know all be all and each person is so different and so unique that we have to be able to try new things and, and think outside the box for each person. I but think that's, that's great advice. advice. Yeah. You can't get so caught up in like you said, you've set this goal and you work so hard to write that evaluation. And one thing I've, I've learned in working in so many different settings, you have to be flexible. I guess that's one of the key words, 
flexible, Mm -hmm. think outside the box, be creative, but have that relationship with the people you work with, the clients, their families. It's all Mm -hmm. been great. Well, it's been great having you, Tisela. So we're going to have a second podcast with Tisela where we can really kind of dig into communication partner training because she's really put some nice work into this. We'll have an infographic for you. I just really want you all to to hear what she's come up with and be able to apply it to your communication with your loved one. Definitely. And I look forward to that. I think I'm, I definitely think it's important to educate where it's possible and um, I can't wait to do so with you. Awesome. Okay. Any last words? Um, I think we should name this, uh, this episode, what is it? Uh, kismic and flexible. <laughs> kismet and flexible. Okay. That's going to be, yeah. we, we have to have some keywords. So that's what we're going to go with. Yeah. All right. That was Gisella. our theme. I think it was. Okay. Terrific. All right, folks. We'll see you next time. Well, you'll hear me next time. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to the Listen for Life podcast. We hope you feel empowered and supported. Head over to listenforlifepodcast.com to see the show notes with links and information from today's episode. Do you have a topic, a resource to share, or a guest recommendation? Inquiring minds want to know. Let us know in the comments section. Wishing you a fabulous week.